0: And we are live. Welcome to episode 3232 of the Survival Podcast. We got 3232 on a date that's 12323. It just worked out that way. I like numeric patterns. Anyway, it is January the 23rd, 2023. I am back on the attack. I am Jack Spierko, your host of the podcast.com. Of course, you know that unless this is the first thing you've ever heard or watched from us. Today, I've got a good one for you. Um, I did a presentation at John Bush's uh, convention. It was was based on food production, and I, I covered just a little bit of how bad things are in that. And I did that because I like waking people up to a problem, but I like focusing on solutions. That's what we're going to do today. So you might have seen that the uh, the title of today's episode is, uh, How F is Our Food System? But don't worry, uh, that is partially just to get you to listen. I'm going to tell you some things, and I, I think they're actually kind of horrifying about our food system. And it's not... You know, somebody bought all the soybeans so people are going to starve. It's not really about supply chains, though eventually it will truly affect them. It's about the food you're eating. This is not like eco hippie crunchy cruncher-granola-hippie stuff. This is like hardcore actual problems both with our ability to produce food into the future and somewhat horrifying things about the food you're probably eating, even if you think you're eating right. Uh, And everything I tell you today will be quantifiable. I may give you some proof points and bring them up on the screen if you're watching the video. There's links in the uh, the show notes today, as always, where you can get uh, verifiable sources on everything that I tell you today. But if you dig deeper, you'll just find that I'm only scratching the surface, that it's all actually worse. But then I'm going to turn towards a solution. And I honestly could have called today's show something in the title about biochar because we're going to talk a lot about biochar and terra preta today as a component of a solution to a lot of these problems. But I didn't, I didn't do it for two reasons. One, because I know if I say your food systems F more of you will tune in, listen, et cetera. But the other reason is because I really want to be clear that when I get into that part of the show, which will be the body of it, there isn't a solution and there isn't a problem. There are solutions and there are problems. And if we have learned anything from permaculture, and hopefully we have, is that if we create things in a linear model, a line connecting a thing to a thing to a thing to a thing, we have a very weak system. And any point of failure destroys everything. But if we build a net of interconnections, we have a lot more ability to hold a system into something functional and hopefully regenerative. And the thing is, everything has an opposite. Every yin has a yang. So problems work the same way. When problems are interconnected in a mesh, they're much more complex and therefore they're harder to solve. And if we come at a problem that is a mesh, trying to solve it with a linear line, we'll never do it. And this is why there's so much dispute and argument and nonsensical bickering on, if you want to put it that way, our side of things, because everybody's trying to champion their thing. You know, there's people that want to champion, hey, we need to all be plant based. I'll tell you how we are and what it's resulted in. We're not all plant based, but society as a whole is a plant based society. We've never been sicker. And it's not just the diet. It's not just the plants. It's not just the type of plants. It's what's in them. We have people like me that are primarily carnivore. And we have some people in that school of thought that want to ram that, you know, no pun intended, down the throat of the vegan or whatever. We don't have time for any of that. And we do not have time to be fighting amongst ourselves when we understand the full weight of the problem we're facing. We really don't. And hopefully that'll all make sense today. So when I go into the part on uh, biochar, and I'll tell you, there's gonna be a whole series. Uh, My ears are still plugged up from travel. Sometimes that happens to me, even if I don't go on an airplane. Um, But we're going to go into a whole series on biochar and, and go deeper into this subject. And I'm also going to be talking to you in the future, not really today, but how if you want to really become an expert at something, do you know what a solution would be? Do you know how you can get a better education? Listen to podcasts, go to YouTube, whatever. Like, that's all great. But really, if you really want to know something cold better than you would if you took a whole college year on it. Do a podcast of your own, even if you don't do it for the purpose of having a profession as a podcaster. That will be coming later, maybe this week, maybe next week. Anyway. Let's start going here. Uh, before we do, I want to go ahead and remind you about our two sponsors of the day. They do a lot to help take care of us and make sure that we are here for you. And uh, Today's sponsor today day, number one today, is John Pugliano. John is a member of our expert council. He's a really good dude, and he's one of us. He's not just an investment manager. He's actually a homesteader, ham radio operator. He's answered all kinds of questions on investing on the show, but occasionally he'll also take one on something like Casting bullets because he does that or ham radio or, you know, other things, too. And his philosophy of building wealth, and that's why he calls it the wealth studying podcast, is we should grow our wealth the way we grow a garden. You keep making it better across time. You keep growing. And every time you put effort into your garden, you only do it because you expect something to come out of it. And I wanted to just we've never done this before. Give you a few names of some recent episodes of this podcast. Controlled Burn of the Economy. That's kind of serendipitous giving some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, though he means it in a different way. Uh, recession. Millionaires are pulling back spending. Performance improvement. Keep a journal. What do you want to do when you grow up? And where to park cash reserves in a turbulent stock market? Those are just some of the recent episodes of the Wealth Studying Podcast. Check that out and learn more. And I mentioned I was just down. With John Bush, we had a great event down there. I got to meet Zuby and JP Sears and Mark Moss. Uh, I'll probably have JP come on the show sometime in the future. i definitely be doing more with Mark Moss. We'll see about Zuby. I didn't get to spend a lot of time talking to him, but I did get to talk to him. Um, but John told me he's got something new coming up, and he asked me to be part of it while I was there. We all know that the people in power, and they're part of the problem. We're going to talk about today. Uh, They want complete control. And one way to do that is to implement CBDCs that Central Bank Digital Currencies. John is going to be doing like a week long series of webinars with experts, including this crazy guy in a hat right here in the picture. That would be me talking about what to do about this. And you can attend it for free. That's right. I said for free. It's not for sale is for free. And if you want to know more about that, there's a link in the video notes below. If you're watching the video, if you are not watching the video, you will find uh, in uh, the audio notes for today's episode, 3232 a link to learn more about that. And of course it will go out in the daily mail and what have you. So if you're not on the daily mail, maybe you should be on, you guessed it, the daily mail, which is an email list that I put out for members of my audience. And, uh, If you check that out you will get one email a day all it will do is uh, is uh, give you like the highlights for the day you get a little text blurb hey here's what's new on the blog here's the item of the day Here's stuff like we just talked about Uh, here's the episode of the day one email a day all text no gimmicks no no crap no nothing like that just really easy quick so I definitely recommend you get up on the Daily Mail so Let's start off, and yes, what I promised you today, what you turned up for, many of you. How effed is our food system? I'm going to give you a few facts about our food system, and I defy you to prove them wrong. As horrific as some of them may be, the first one should be one of the most horrific things when you think about feeding your children food that you buy in a store or e-source from anywhere at this point anyway. Something that's been going on for decades Some of you, the minute I tell you this, you're going to doubt it. But did you know that they put uranium on farm fields every year in America, third world countries, first world countries, everywhere to the tune of about 12 million tons of uranium is spread purposefully. Well, not on purpose, but the spreading is done on purpose on the farm fields all over the world. And it's been going on for decades how does this happen? Well, they mine phosphate from the ground, and there's trace amounts of uranium in that phosphate. They put the phosphate through a process that leaves behind these horrible pools. They're all over Florida. That's a, most of the phosphate in the United States is mined from Florida. And those are much higher in uranium, by the way. Oh, just sit there. It'll be okay. I don't worry about it. It's fine. But there's still a lot of uranium in the phosphate, the rock phosphate that is put on our fields. Again, 12 million tons. Now, it's across the whole world. But this has been going on since, well, since we started mining phosphate, which is a very, very long time. And we keep adding more and more phosphate to our fields. And the reason we do this is because we're destroying the biological activity in the field. So we often have, if you actually tested how much phosphorus was in the soil, all the phosphorus the plant could possibly need is there, but the biological process is dead. So you have, it's, it's like a, think of a type two diabetic. They're not really a diabetic. They produce insulin. But a normal amount of insulin won't get the job done anymore. So we keep adding more and more and more. Half-life of uranium, it's over 4 billion years. Check it out if you think I'm lying to you. So what happens when you put 12 million tons of something on a field that doesn't go away? And it's heavy, so it stays put year after year after year. It accumulates. So basically, our farm fields are radioactive at this point. Is this a new thing? No, this should be on the news every night, but it won't be because they don't want you to know about it. Bill Mollison lectured on this. I listened to a PDC that he did back in the early 80s, somewhere around 83, 84. And he said this was already a problem. It was so bad that you would never get rid of it. I'll tell you a way today. Maybe we can't get rid of it. Maybe we can lock some of it up and mitigate. But your food's radioactive. Oh, and many fields out there that are under organic cultivation, they weren't always under organic cultivation. And just because they went under organic cultivation doesn't mean the uranium went away. So you have radioactive food. Yeah. That's not so bad, is it? It's pretty bad. On top of this, glyphosate, also known as Roundup, we all know they make these GMO crops. They spray them with glyphosate. But you're like, not me, man. I eat organic or whatever. There's been studies done that the majority of people walking around today actually have glyphosate in their system. Like, And you know how they find out? They don't do like a really uh, expensive, complicated test. They just take a urine sample and say, does this person have glyphosate Roundup in their urine? Almost every American tested people all around the world. Again, third world, the first world countries. And I have an article up here on CBS news about as mainstream as it gets that acknowledges, yeah, you know, we have glyphosate in our bodies. And when, Further testing was done. and People that have not eaten anything but organic or homegrown food still have it in their bodies. And this could be due to a variety of reasons. One could be that a lot of people out there that are doing organic maybe aren't actually doing organic. Or a lot of organic food comes from countries who certify it as organic and then ship it to other countries. And maybe they're not so stringent about it. Maybe somebody pays off an inspector. But how about this? Most large scale organic farms are right next to non-organic farms. And when you just spray shit everywhere, you get herbicide drift. So we're literally eating glyphosate. Now, I've been telling you this for years. Some people doubt me. And it gets even worse. Do you know that some some farmers spray glyphosate, 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 gly, round up on the crops that are not Roundup ready? They know it will kill their crop. Well, why? Well, because a grain crop, like let's say wheat, you want it all dry, all at the same state when it's harvested. You get the best harvest that way. So what they do is they actually spray their wheat field a few weeks before they're going to harvest it and kill the wheat. Now, if you look this up, it'll say it's not really done very often. I've confirmed it's done quite often. And the fact that people are pissing it out tells you it's done quite often. So we have radioactive food, and we have Roundup in our bodies because there's so much of it in our food. And someone says, "Can't wash it off?" Nope, you can't wash it off. You can't wash it off. Glyphosate is in rain, so it's asked the animals. Not wrong. It's in our very it's in our very systems. That I don't mean our bodies now. I mean our systems, our ecological cycling systems. Now have this chemical that's been sprayed in the metric shit ton. Uh, I believe someday that there will be a class action lawsuit related to this that will make all the class action lawsuits look like a joke, but it won't be anytime soon. And I know there has been one, but not like what I'm talking about. When the real truth becomes evident here, it's going to be unbelievable. Another thing, and I I talked about this uh, during my presentation at Greater Reset down in Bastrop, I found it funny too, by the way. It's totally unrelated. Somebody wrote me an email while I was gone. I said, I hope you had fun in bass drop. B A S S, like the fish, space, D R O P. It's bass drop, one word, B A S T R O P. Anyway, um, I, I mentioned in that presentation, I've, I've talked about this a lot on the show. The number one thing that we export from the United States, way by the ton, is topsoil. And I wonder, well, how bad has this been cumulatively over time? There was a study done recently, again, mainstream news, NPR. The Midwest has lost 57 billion metric tons of topsoil over the last 160 years. Now, I want you to think about how farming was done 160 years ago and realize how much worse this is than it sounds. Because 160 years ago, we were losing nowhere near as much topsoil annually as we lose today. We're actually losing topsoil right now. At about one centimeter a year. That's right, one centimeter a year. And um, anybody here want to guess how long it takes to build a centimeter of soil? Uh, I have an article here you can read more. They use inches, so I've kind of gone off script from what they're going to match to. But it takes roughly in the aggregate average of climates without human assistance to the positive, 100 years to build a centimeter of soil. A centimeter of soil is around a third of an inch, 100 years to build a third of an inch of soil. Now, this might sound wrong because you're thinking about, like, all the material that falls and whatever. Yeah, but it becomes humus and then it breaks down the soil. Humus is like this top duft. And then you have your actual topsoil. That topsoil Average, aggregate average, without humans intentionally building it faster, 100 years, one centimeter, and we are losing it at about one centimeter a year. Can you say unsustainable? I know some people don't like the word sustainable because they think it means barely hanging on, circling the drain, what have you. But when it's unsustainable, that means we're not treading water. We're not circling the drain. And again, I'm back to this, guys. 50 7 billion metric tons of topsoil just the Midwestern United States. Now, without that topsoil, we don't get to live. So we're talking about chemical crisis and the quality of our food and environmental crisis and the ability to continue to produce our food. How effed is our, our system, uh, the answer to sum it up and make it as simple to understand in redneck, How effed up is our food system? Very. That's a simple answer to a very complex question. It's that simple, though. It is very, very, very effed up. And, you know, I talked in the beginning about this idea that we have to stop fighting amongst ourselves. And so let me define amongst ourselves. I take ourselves as to anybody who is willing to admit there's a problem And that we need to fundamentally change the way we grow and produce our food and is willing enough and and means it enough to do something themselves personally. Whether it's an herb garden or a market garden or a backyard flock of birds or anything in between, full on organic fruit orchard, nut orchard, nut job orchard. I don't care if you're willing to pick up a shovel and stop talking long enough to go do something to make compost, to teach a workshop. I don't care what it is. If it's all of it or a piece of it, you're us. You're one of us. You're not one of them. One of them is the chem ag oligarchy. Big pharma included is all part of this. The giant supply chain, control of the money, all of it. That's them. We are us. So the vegan that lives on a commune in Mexico, I consider one of us with me, a primary carnivore whose geese and birds you can probably hear because I got my window cracked, because even though it's winter and cold outside, if I don't crack the window, it gets hot in here and I refuse to turn the air conditioner on when it's forty-five degrees outside. So that's what I mean when I say one of them. We can't fight anymore. We don't have any time to fight anymore. And K-Bonk asks in all caps, where is the soil going? The ocean? Primarily yes. That's where our soil goes. And specifically, the Midwest soil ends up in one of the rivers that ends up in the Mississippi River that ends up in the Gulf of Mexico that creates a dead zone the size of the state of Rhode Island every year where everything in the ocean at the mouth of the Mississippi River dies. We can't keep doing this. And we don't need to fight with each other to fix this, because no matter what you want to accomplish, the solutions are dramatically similar from a diverse set of Desires that human beings have. We talk a lot about the loss of biodiversity. And it's a big problem. I don't deny that it's a big problem. But you know what other diversity that we're losing? It's a big problem. The diversity of technique, the diversity of knowledge, all these subsistence farmers all around the world. You know, we think of them as primitive. They're not primitive. They're incredibly sophisticated. I'm about to turn the corner here. We're going to start talking about something called terra preta and biochar and the techniques for soil building that lasted for centuries in South America in the Amazon River Basin and how we can use them today. And a lot of that knowledge you're going to see when I start telling you, well, here's what they did and here's what it did. And here's how it worked. We don't know. We're guessing. I'm even going to bounce some ideas off you that I've gotten by examining how I'll do this myself and saying, well, maybe it's not what we think at all, but it is what we think. Crazy? We'll find out. We lost that knowledge. We lost so much knowledge from the native peoples of North and South America, but we lost knowledge of, you know, we have echoes of the knowledge. For instance, there were systems in the areas like where Slovenia, Croatia, et cetera, are today, where subsistence farming was done with three ponds. One would always have baby fish. One would always have fish to, to be harvested that year. And one would be dry and grazed. Does that sound? If you heard it before, you're like, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. If you didn't, you're like, that's insane. No, it wasn't. It's was very simple. They drained the pond. They put down seed for grazing. They grazed the pond. The manure from the animals that grazed it resealed it. And then they drained the pond and harvested the fish. The baby pond became... the the fish that would be harvested the next season, and they continue to do that. And this worked almost in perpetuity forever until, well, we stopped doing it because we figured out how chemicals and combines and things like that work. There's so much we've lost. But what's even – see, to me, we can look back at that and say we as a species solve problems, and sometimes our solutions make worse problems, but we sometimes do this in ignorance. Today, we are ignoring all these little subsistence farmers that still have these not this knowledge and these echoes of knowledge. And we're putting them under. We're putting them out of business. We're turning the whole world into a giant plowed chem ag facility under the name of saving the planet. We're doing the thing that's actually killing it. So for a guy that tells you all this CO2 global warming shit is BS, do I not sound like an environmentalist? Hold on to that thought because it's really going to come together about midway through today. So let's start talking about solutions and let's take the rest of the show. I gave you 20 minutes of this is really screwed up. I gave you the blood in the water that you were looking for, folks. Let's fix it. Let's get the blood out of the water. Starting out, the biggest thing we need is soil fertility. That's the most important thing. The health of soil is the health of people. I don't say that to sound intelligent or to sound philosophical or be quotable. I'm sure somebody else's, I'm sure many somebody else's have said it. But if you want to see the health of people, look at the health of their soil. And as the soil health declines, the health of the people declines. Do I need to prove that or can can you kind of just take that one and accept it, right? The health of the people is directly corresponds to the health of soil. If you don't eat plants, you eat animals. What do they eat? They eat plants. Where do the plants come from the soil? There's an old joke. What kind of farm do you have? I got a dirt farm. All right. Got a dirt farm. The truth is all good farms, whether they're actually ranches raising cattle and sheep or pork or whether they're growing grains or fruits or nuts or vegetables or dirt farms and not really dirt farms, soil farms, soil farms. What we do is we take care of microbes. Somebody just brought up microbes. We take care of microbes. Microbes contribute to all the cycles that result in good soil. And good soil grows nutritious food, regardless of what's eating it and whether we're eating it directly or indirectly. Fungi, bacteria, nematodes, other microbes, all of these things work in conjunction. And what's known as the soil food web. But I like to simplify things. So I have three words that sum up what we need to do to restore fertility to our soils in a regenerative way. And they are build, hold, increase. That's it. When you take over a piece of land, whether it's a small backyard in suburbia or a small market garden farm that you want to roll up or that broad scale acreage, you're going to have to build fertility. Most of the time you have to build fertility from almost nothing. Why? Because almost 100 percent of land that you are going to acquire has not previously been under a good soil management program. It just hasn't had one. If it's commercial ag, it's probably worse than if nothing was done. So you're going to start with either a blank slate or a very weak system. So we're going to have to do something initially to build that fertility. And obviously every year we want to add more fertility to the soil through natural cycling. Sometimes it means bringing in inputs. Sometimes it means making our own inputs on site from other materials on site, but we want to increase. But the most important thing is to hold. And up until recently, my primary viewpoint on how to hold nutrient was one we need, herbaceous, I'm sorry, uh, tree-based and shrub-based riparian components. And I still believe that. So we don't want all fields. We want trees, shrubs, bushes, vines. Even if we have open fields and we're doing annual cropping or grazing like that, we still need to do things like silvopasture rows of trees, animals graze in between because that will hold, and earthworks. These have been the two primary means by which I have taught how to hold fertility on the land so that as you build it and increase it, you're not still at a net loss. If I'm exporting a centimeter of topsoil a year, I have to build two to stay ahead, and no one's doing that. Not on an ongoing, regular basis, especially on a broad scale, so I have to hold it. The other way to do it was by building a strong soil food web with lots of humus in it that would hold on instead of let things blow away using things like mulches, et cetera. With biochar, and I'll get into that in just a second, I found another way because it's the primary thing that biochar does is hold that fertility in the soil. It actually provides no fertility. It provides a home for microbes. It locks up toxins and it holds onto nutrients which are then accessible and available to the plant through their interactions with the soil organisms. So it becomes our magnet within an overriding strategy of hold. It doesn't mean that we can go out and flat plow shove biochar in there and everything will be okay more on fud and misinformation and rig studies in just a minute so that's But i just want you to get that in your head if you if you come away from this today and that was interesting but if i said what is the philosophy of building soil and managing soil fertility properly and you can say build hold increase boom home run you get an a plus for today's test all right that's that important next we need backyard gardens small producers all the things the permaculture people advocate for, but we also need to do this at a macro level, a broad scale. Only doing this at a broad scale will stop 12 million tons of uranium from being added to our farms every year over and over and over again with an accumulation that is frightening. right? Only doing that will stop you know, metric shit tons of our soil from going into the ocean and causing dead zones. We can't only do the little. And I'm going to actually turn to focusing on the little right now. But we always need to be calling for the broad scale to match what the small scale is doing, because until we do, we will not fix this problem. And we may build our little islands and pockets of fertility and proof points that it works. And that's going to be really important in the future. But we have to keep calling for, keep pushing for. It's way more important than who you vote for, what political ass clowns in in power. You have to understand the power structure doesn't seek to solve problems. They seek to maintain power, which means they only solve problems when problems fully and completely and wholly threaten their power. We're headed for that point. It gets really ugly when that happens. We need to be ready, and we need to see it as an opportunity. One thing that John said that kind of made the crowd down at the, the convention in Bastrop go, oh, at the Greater Reset. Go, oh, my God. I can't believe he said that. He said, I'm grateful for, for Klaus Schwab. I'm grateful for the Great Reset. I'm grateful for all, look, Bill Gates, all these oligarchs. I'm grateful for all of the, the FUD around the covids. I'm great. And the What he said was, it's, it's awakened more people than have ever been awake before in history. I told my wife this morning, 10 years ago, a lot of the things that I talk about, when a person just said, I don't believe it. I felt an obligation to educate them, even if it was against their will, a little bit. I don't anymore. I feel like what's going on is so obvious. If you don't see it yet, you're not ready. And when you are, let me know. We'll be here to help you. We need to build our systems with that in mind that sooner or later, there is going to be a mass, a critical mass that will accumulate. And this will shift in the general consciousness of the public because it will become so evident that it will be impossible for us to ignore it. So we need to focus on the backyards right now. And why? You're small holding. You're 40 acres. You Understand in this, in this concept, when I say small, if you own 500 acres, that's tiny. People don't even take farms seriously at the level we're talking about until we're talking like 30,000, 40,000 acres. That's what these guys take seriously. That's what T. Boone Pickens meant in the 1970s when he told America's farmers, go big or go home. And when they don't have farms that are that big, these farms all around the world, that the World Economic Forum is involved with and, and, and all the bankers are involved with and they're loaning them money and putting them on the hook. They think of them collectively at that size, even though they're individually managed at a smaller level. And so that's what big is. So if you're doing 150 acres, God bless you. I mean, New Forest Farms that Mark Shepard is, is doing, which is amazing, is only 110 acres. It's tiny in the scale of ag we're talking today. So from the 50-square-foot foot, foot garden up to the multi-hundred-square-foot, we're in the world where we can make a difference. And if it's so important that we change the big, then why do we focus on the small? Because we can. You can go outside in your backyard today and make compost. You can go outside today and put in a garden that won't erode and leach soil and nutrient. You can change what your family eats in your backyard. And only by doing that over and over again consistently and teaching others and being successful will you do what they always talk about when they talk about using warfare, win the hearts and minds of the population. That never seems to work, and it never seems to work because when you have guys walking around with guns and pointing them at people, even if they're not shooting anybody at the moment, it's very clear that we are here by force. You can't eject us because we're here by force. That's why it never works. But when you feed people. You just might win their hearts and minds, especially when it's better food than they get anywhere else. So let's go into biochar now. See why I didn't call the whole episode biochar. I want to start talking about this from the standpoint of terra preta and biochar. As I begin, I want to talk about the fact that there's a lot of FUD out there. The biochar doesn't work. It takes too much work. It takes too much energy. It's, it's an excuse to cut down forests, et cetera. And people will point to studies that say, well, we tried biochar and it didn't work. Have you learned anything about how you make a study not work? I mean, did you, did you pay attention for the last three years to some medical studies that didn't work? Because you notice know, like you, you leave things out that are kind of important to the hypothesis? The hypothesis is these three things work together to solve this problem. And you put one of them in your study. You use it at the wrong time, in the wrong dose, at the wrong state the wrong way with the wrong patient. And they say, look, it doesn't work. See, we tried it. Well, how did they do this with biochar? One study in Germany, for example, what they did, they took three fields, denuded shitty fields that nothing really wanted to grow in. They took one of them and they got a whole bunch of chemical fertilizer and they put it in the field. They got another one and they took a whole bunch of organic fertilizer, which was mostly chicken shit. And they put it in the field and they took another field and they just, put biochar in the field. Now, if you know anything about biochar, you already know that's not going to work. And the people that did the study knew enough about biochar to know it's not going to work. It holds on a nutrient and it holds on to minerals and it prevents leaching of said same out of soil. So how is it going to do that if none of them are in the soil? So they rigged a study to fail. And you'll find when you start digging into this, people citing things like that. So just be aware of it and just write it off as the bullshit as it is because an entire society went from a couple hundred thousand people to tens of millions of people in a place that is one of the least fertile places in the world, the Amazon basin. People think the rainforest is the most fertile place in the world. Nothing can be further from the truth. The soils of, of, of the tropical rainforest are the most fragile soils in the world. And you can't crop them for very long before you denute them and you have to let the jungle come back. That's slash and burn agriculture. It's a horrible practice. If it's done by small groups, it's actually pretty harmless, but done on scale, which is being done to do today to grow soybeans, it's a horrible, horrible eco- ecological catastrophe. But yet, somehow, millions of people with no fossil fuels, right, with none of the modern conveniences, grew a great society, many great societies in this place using biochar as the primary means by which they did. There's more to it than that, and we're about to get into it. But just understand the, the flood is there. Don't worry about it. Um, I also want you to, you have to do something else. And K-Bonk's asking a question. I'm going to start it for later. If you want to ask a question or make a comment, you want me to comment on, do what K-Bonk did. You'll see it right there in the live stream, all caps, and I will start it for later. I'll come back to you. Um, anyway, our time preference. I talk about it with Bitcoin. We have to have a longer time preference. The shirt I'm wearing today says bring back seventh generational thinking. When we had hard money, we thought out that far. But what if we were thinking in centuries? What if we were thinking in millennia? What if we didn't want, above all things, dollars? If you think about it today, we measure wealth in dollars. No matter what you buy with it, whether it's a farm that you own and control or a Maserati, or a Lamborghini, or a Ferrari, or Corvette. It's still the dollar is the means by which we get there. Something interesting about the societies in South America, this is not a judgment of capitalism by any means. It's just the truth. They didn't have money. They didn't think in terms of money. They thought wealth was the ability to feed yourself, and to feed your family, and to feed your community. That was their primary means of wealth. It was the main thing they worked for. So what if instead of worrying about how much can I get tomorrow, you were worried about how much will be here for my great, great, great to the nth degree grandchild? You might do things a little bit differently. You might do some things that make us very, very hard for us to understand what these people really did, what they actually did to build this soil. Because now we can look at it and say, there it is. Gee, let's I'll show you a picture in a bit. Let's dig a hole. It's six foot deep. It's still there and it's still biologically active and it's still functioning. And we can grow stuff in it today, even though nobody took care of it forever. And it's not the rainforest because we go over here where nobody did it in the rainforest and you can't grow Jilly da- g- jack. How does that work? And so we come. To, my viewpoint is all the research, all the scientific knowledge, all the theory of today. In how they built this stuff, we call terra preta, which is black soil. And it's terra preta de indio, which is black soil of the indigenous in Portuguese is where the term comes from. And we're still thinking, even if we're thinking two, three generations, we're still thinking a very short time horizon to what may have led not to the discovery. Hey, this works. Let's do it. But to the method by which it was done. Because there are some things in here that no one has been able to answer yet. And I'll throw some theories at you about them today. But please expand your time preference to at least 10 generations, not even seven, as we have this discussion now. Here's how we think Native Americans, and I'm speaking specifically of the Amazonian uh, region, made terra preta. We think it kind of went like this they had these places where they were cooking and doing community cooking and throwing all their charcoal. And when they kind of like wore that area out and they moved, they noticed everything grew really good there. So they got an idea, Hey, this charcoal and these pottery shards and these bones, and maybe everybody taking a dump in there, throwing animal carcasses in there. Cause it doesn't stink because the charcoal keeps the stink down. Maybe, maybe we should do this on purpose. So they started to do the following. They would dig a pit dig a pit, and then they would cut down trees, branches, shrubs, trimmings, whatever, carbon, wood, woody mass material. And it could be small. It could be things like, oh, I don't know, corn stalks and corn cobs, maize, as it's actually properly called. It doesn't have to be big hunks of wood. Anything that's carbon can make char, biochar, biological char. Real quick on that, the difference between... Biochar and charcoal is biochar is taken to the extreme. About half of the carbon in the item remains; the other half is gone as part of the paralysis, paralysis uh, combustion cycle. But the part that remains is pretty much for human life expectancy is permanently locked up for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. It becomes stable, and if we put it in soil, it can stay stable for millennia. And so that carbon is out of the atmosphere and into the soil. If we bury a tree branch, we said we've sequestered carbon, but the tree will rot and the carbon will go back into the atmosphere. Eventually, it doesn't lock up permanently the way that this carbon does. So biochar is made by burning long and slow and removing all the moisture and everything except the carbon, leaving behind basically a black carbon skeleton. And if it's done right and you take a bunch of it and you drop it while it's dry, it sounds like glass or seashells and it tinkles. It's pretty cool. So that's what biochar is. That's not what you buy in a ball in a bag and put in your grill. There's a lot of organic matter still there that has not gone locked up into the carbon, uh, you know, carbon sequestration level with it. So they dug this pit. They threw the carbon in it. They lit it on fire. And then they threw stuff on top of it once the fire got going, good to leave a slow, controlled, smoking, smoldering burn. And then they spread it out on the fields. That's that's what that's the theory as to how they did this. That one way or another, they figured this out, and and, and so they did this. And then they figured out that if you did that, and you had a lot of people, and you made it a standard practice. And and they kind of looked at the layers and estimated it. And they said, hey, you could build about a centimeter, a third of an inch a year this way. And then they looked at this and they said, hey, wait a minute. This is two meters thick. That means that this system was probably under that management practice for about 200 years. Metric systems really easy. 100 centimeters to the meter, two meters thick, 100 years to the centimeter, 200 years to make two meters. And it seems plausible. There's a lot of problems with this, though. What's the time preference that these people have? We think we want to go horizontally fast, right? We want to – how quickly can we make 100 acres to where we can plant into it and harvest to feed our people? How quickly can we get 100 acres? What have you thought vertically? Some of you just went click, whoa, whoa. And you're heading down the road. I'm about to go down with you. And I'm not saying I want to be clear. I'm going in a theory now. Just spitballing on some ideas. But what if your, your goal was to get as deep as you could, as fast as you could? And you were willing to take time because you had figured out a way to feed the people you had. You knew your population was going to grow. And instead of trying to grow more for the sake of growing more to make more money, you only needed enough to feed your population and enough growth to continue to handle the growth of the population. And you knew the faster we go down or up, depending on how you're going to do it, the deeper we get, the quicker we get, then that place is done. And we build the next place you might build vertically. And there's some interesting things when we look at. Well, when we actually dig down in a terra preta two meters, what do we see? What do we find? And we find a lot of things, but one of the things we find, and we don't find this as significantly everywhere as what I'm about to show you, but we find pottery shards. This is, I can't remember, uh, well, it says right there his name, uh, Will or Wim. Wim Sombrek, explaining pretty characteristics in Manassas, Brazil. And it's a gentleman looks very British looking to me. I don't know if he is. Got his spectacles on and his white mustache and his, not really a pith helmet, but kind of hat that looks like a pith helmet. And he's standing in a pit, and dude's probably over five foot. And he's all the way in the pit up to his head. But if you look at the wall next to the stick he's using to measure, if you, if you are watching the video, and I have a link to this page in the audio notes if you're getting the audio of this, it looks like there's a bunch of rocks in the soil. That's what it looks like to you. It looks like stones. Stone was actually incredibly valuable. Rock and stone was incredibly valuable to the people of this region. Do you know why? They don't have any. You can dig and 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 you don't find rocks. Those are pottery shards. Pottery shards. And doesn't it look like a lot? Don't a lot of the pieces of it look thicker than a centimeter? Hmm. See how it's all layered in there? And, again, it doesn't look like this everywhere, but most of these places have a huge amount of pottery shards. Ten percent or more of the total volume is pottery shards. So just let that sink in for a minute while I go forward. And, and, again, you have to get your time horizon out to see where I'm going here. The other thing that we found is fish, shells, and bones. And so when I say shells, I mean mostly like um, freshwater shellfish, like mussels, or crustaceans or things like that. And a lot of fish bones and animal bones were found in there as well because those are high in minerals and nutrient. Uh, And they also find today even bacteria and fungi and specifically bacteria, beneficial bacteria. Some they can't find anywhere else in the world. They seem to be specifically indigenous and only indigenous to this region. Some are found we think this is the only place it is, but, oh, here it is way over here in another continent, right? One separated by, an o- separated by an ocean, but nowhere in the world do we find the combination of them that we find in the Terra Preta. Very, very interesting to me that they were cultivating all of these microorganisms, and I doubt they knew that they were. They did a thing that worked, so they continued to do it because it continued to work. And if it, the thing about living at the time these people were building this, when something didn't work, You only did it for so long because you couldn't cheat. You couldn't drill a hole, pump a black sludge out of it, refine it into infinite energy in regards to what you could actually use in a year. And we talk about oil and shortages and all, but when it comes down to it, we produce more energy than we could ever need from oil today, oil, gas, et cetera, coal. Now it doesn't mean we always can. I'm saying right now the energy for the purposes of can we do a thing if we want to, not whether we should or should not not whether everybody's fed, not whether everybody's cared for, not whether there is or isn't pollution. But from a standpoint of if we wanted to do a thing, do we have the energy to get it done, including cheating to feed people? We can. And we are. But back then, if it didn't work, pretty soon the crops failed. And when your crops failed, it wasn't inconvenient. It didn't cost more. You didn't do a wire transfer to another country and have it come over on a barge and pay more for it that year. And some people were hungry and some weren't rich and poor alike would starve. So you locked on to what worked and you kept doing it and you saw it as the most important thing in your life. If If we took away money, right, there was no money. There was no hierarchy through fractional or hard wealth. And really the only thing that mattered was stability, safety, security of yourself, your children, your grandchildren then you might take a different view as to what you were willing to work for, where you were willing to invest your labor and what you were willing to give to it. And so I ask you, how do you get that much into the soil of pottery shards? If we think about it today and say, if I want to completely replicate terra preta and I have an acre and I want even just a foot, let alone six and a half foot, Right. I want a foot and I want 10 percent to be shards of pottery. Don't you immediately see a dollar sign and then like the Ghostbusters not symbol across it? Like this is not fine. This does not make financial sense. What what are you going to do? Order a truckload of pots and smash them on the ground. But what if you lived in a place and you had all the human labor you could use and the human labor was all centered around the idea of making sure we can feed ourselves. And you're removing lots of earth and soil and you had large clay deposits and you could make half ass shitty pottery for next to nothing. And you had to move around a lot of dirt, fish bones, human waste and biochar. Might you just not use clay pots for that? What else would you use? Animal skins would be really valuable as clothing. I don't know that you'd want to use that. You don't have the wheel. I guess you can make a sled, but you still need something to contain it. Might you not just use pottery? And might you not have people that they pretty much make pots every day? And might those people not have to not be really great? Might you make pots that they don't need to be all decorative and beautiful like some of them? They're just like half ass pots. And if they're unglazed, right? They're just dried or kiln dried because you're burning a lot of shit. Might you end up with a whole bunch of pots that you carry shit around in, and eventually they get a crack in them, and what do you do? You smash them on the ground. And these middens that they used to have, these pits that were the genesis of the idea, don't you think a lot of them would have ended up in there? And then don't you think somebody might have went, whoa, hey, maybe they even looked at it spiritually. What did the gods want from them? They wanted charcoal. They wanted bones. They wanted human waste. And they wanted clay pots. Well, might not some gifted organizer say when the pot cracks, throw it on the ground and smash it up? Hmm. Now, back to my idea of growing vertically. See, what I learned about biochar is that we have to charge it up is what some people say. We have to give it nutrients and we have to give it microorganisms. If we don't, when we put it in our soil, it will steal it from the soil. Not really. What we actually have to do is make it easily inhabitable by soil microorganisms and giving it some nutrient mineral doesn't hurt either. And there's all kinds of ways to do this, but the simplest thing you can do is when you make compost, put about 10% or more biochar in the compost. By the time the composting is done, you're good. You just apply it as compost and biochar together. That's you can, make compost tea, pump air through it, soak the biochar and apply it. But they probably weren't doing that. I doubt they had air compressors, right? Or even a little aquarium air pump that you can make compost tea with. It's not a bad thing to do today. You could even add some liquid nutrient and stuff like that and liquid minerals like kelp or something to it. Great idea. Maybe we should do that today. But they wouldn't have had that. Well, what happens if you build a pit, you fill it up with carbon, when it starts burning to the point where you're ready to make biochar, you put some of the soil back into it. And then you cover it with a bunch of your slash, your green matter. Well, it is a pit. And it does make charcoal, biochar charcoal, not king's It does that. But what are you left with? You're left with a big pile of brush. And some of it's going to dry out from the heat. And some of it's going to stay green. Now what do you have? You have greens and browns. And might you not, like, throw all your poop in there? Because, well, if you threw your poop in there, it wouldn't stink. It would either burn off or be locked up with carbon. Carbon makes stink go away. Well, then what would happen? Wouldn't you end up with this pit basically rotting back down to a background level and ending up with tons of potter? Maybe you even would turn it a little bit to incorporate it after the process was done. And then maybe you wouldn't grow anything in it for a season or two. And maybe you would just make pit after pit, after pit, after pit, after pit, after pit, pit, knowing that once this is done, I don't ever have to worry about this spot. Even if it's a 50 by 50 foot pit, I don't ever have to worry about this spot ever again. This will grow food for my great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and I know that because that spot over there was planted by an ancestor so long ago, I don't remember. And it still works. And might you stop trying to grow horizontally fast and vertically? I want to be clear again. I'm spitballing here. I'm theorizing. I'm pulling this out of my butt. But it makes more sense to me than any explanation for how they actually made this stuff than I've seen. What I've seen as evidence for the claim that they built it at one centimeter a year broadly instead of, you know, by the by the square hundred yards vertically. Is the idea that we still have people practicing this and they basically make the pit and spread it. Maybe they didn't get the ancestral knowledge handed down to them. The native peoples of this country. I'll I'll get into it another day on the disservice we do by calling them the Native Americans. That's like considering. People that are from Patagonia, the same as people that are from Pennsylvania today. It's, it's that insu- it's actually far more insulting because at least those people communicate over the Internet. Right. And at least there's been like all this colonization done today and this kind of homogenization, even amongst these diverse and varied cultures. At the time that we're talking of, they might not even have been aware that the other one existed. And we lump them all in together. Well, when colonization happened and diseases got spread and all the other horrible things that happened, something terrible happened again. A lot of the knowledge that even the people that are native descendants today uh, pride themselves on having was broken and lost. It had to have been. So those people may just not know. They also don't have the time preference and the time horizon. Remember what I said about the population. Much has been done with the research to determine. There was, you know, a couple 10,000, then a couple 100,000, then a couple million, then tens of millions of people, maybe, or even more. Well, that all happened over time. There was plenty of time, if your preference is right, that maybe these things were built vertically. Doesn't mean we can't kind of build more horizontally today, but it's an interesting, interesting thing. Um, I'd be interested in talking to some researchers about this and bouncing that theory off them, including if they could tell me, well, we know that didn't happen because. I don't know that they do all right, so how can we use biochar again, I want to point out we don't really need to charge it up, you know, inoculate it, all of these things. What we need to do is make it ideal for inhabit 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 to be habited <laughs> for habitation by microorganisms. Here's some easy methods, like I said, compost tea you make compost tea, you brew it up for a day or two, lots of oxygen pumped into it. Basically, you take something like a paint straining bag, you hang it in a five-gallon bucket full of water, and inside the bag is good quality compost. Not shit you buy from Home Depot Lowe's or from a mass market, something you make yourself or get from a trusted source. You blow air bubbles into it. For, you know, and you can do that a variety of ways. And then you take that and you completely soak your biochar in it. And once that's done for about a day you apply it, yeah, and you're good, you're golden. The other way is to compost it, and there's a couple ways you can do this. When you make compost, you add it to the compost when you're building the compost pile. The other way you can do it, if you have compost and you have biochar, you can take something like a big tub and maybe you're gonna add 10 buckets, whether it's little buckets or big buckets, 10 buckets of compost to your garden. And then you might take three buckets of compost, and mix in one bucket of biochar, and then three, and then let that sit for a couple weeks, and let it sit as compost and biochar together, and then apply it, so if you've already made your compost, or your compost is already composting, you don't want to tear it apart to add the biochar, you can do that, and you can do that to ad hoc add hoc at it, you can cycle it through animals, animals seek out and eat biochar, I'm not going to get into this today, but there's actually a lot of research being done that a lot of uh, digestive problems and pathogens and things like that. When biochar is either fed free choice or added to feed, when it passes through an animal, it actually fixes a lot of those problems. Well, they don't eat the biochar and get absorbed into the body as a nutrient. It actually sucks things up and it goes out the other end. So if you were free choice feeding charcoal, like minerals, right? Like if you had free choice minerals and included charcoal or just made charcoal available to cattle or sheep and they're eating it, Then it's being deposited along with their other generous gifts to the land, rate to the land already as inoculated as you could ever want it to be. Now we know the natives in South America weren't doing this because they didn't have those types of animals in their systems. If you've ever wondered why don't they have the wheel, it wasn't very practical without roads and draft animals. The wheel doesn't make a lot of sense to a society like this. Sleds made more sense to deal with the elevation and things like that. Imagine trying to use humans to pull a wheeled vehicle up a giant steep hill, or worse yet, control it on its way down. Sled-type features made a lot more sense. You could build simple braking systems into because they had the wheel. Uh, the Indians of the southwestern United States had pottery wheels. That's an axle, two wheels, one you spin with your foot, the other one the pot goes on. Other tribes had similar systems. And they had toys. In Central America, we found all these toys. Right. All these all these like places in Central America and Northern South America found these little toys the kids played with and they had little wheels on them. So they knew how a wheel worked, they just didn't use it mainly because they didn't have draft animals. So they didn't have concentrated animal feces to work with. We do. We can add that. That's one of the things I like about it. And we can and likely should add minerals like rock dust or kelp somewhere along the process to even supercharge it further. But we know we don't need that because we know that's not what they did. But I would say there's probably quite a bit of mineral when you look at ceramics, and you look at fish bone, and you look at game bones, and you look at human waste, etc. That was going into their systems. It's pretty amazing when you think about that. And so biochar does many things. Uh, Green Country Agrofire uh, Agroforestry said it, charcoal stops diarrhea pretty effectively. It does. It's interesting, but. One of the things we know it does is it actually locks up toxins to the point that they become inert. Something else does that. Good compost. Good compost locks up toxins. It locks up salts to where they become inert. Jeff Lawton's work, uh, John D. Liu's work, other, the work of others have shown that compost will do this. Well, we know biochar does it as well. So we can use it to remediate fields that are contaminated. One study uh, there was some environmental regulations that changed around the content of cadmium. And I believe this was in like cashews or something. This was something overseas, something in, in Asia. And so they had these new regulations. So they had to start testing the product. And one of these orchards, they tested the cadmium and said, that's too high under the new regulations. Oh, gee, that means you've been eating cadmium in your cashews. And it could have been pistachios or something. I don't remember. So don't, don't hold me to this, but I know the basics were. They got an idea and they had drip irrigation for this orchard and they applied biochar at the surface and slightly covered where the drip irrigation was and let the drip irrigation help incorporate the charcoal into the soil. And in two seasons, just two seasons, the amount of cadmium went below what was considered a safe level. And that's all that they did was add, add the biochar. So if we used it more intelligently, We probably have fields that have like, you know, lots of things in them that we'd prefer not to grow our food in that we can actually lock up. We can actually lock up these bad guys because what the charcoal does is it locks up the bad, renders it inert, and it locks up a lot of the things that plants need. So a little soil microorganism isn't going to go into the little apartment in the charcoal and seek out cadmium. It doesn't want cadmium. Just like you wouldn't eat cadmium if you were walking down a buffet and one said cadmium and one said ribeye. You're not going to be like, mm, I'm going to get me some cadmium. Right. Especially if you had to do a little bit of work on that buffet. You're going to go for the ribeye. So the bioorganism goes into the little apartment because the charcoal has millions of tiny holes in it. One little piece of charcoal has acres of surface area because of the way all the little holes work. And it's going to go in there and go, mm, I'm going to work for. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to work for uh, selenium or I'm going to work for manganese because that's what I do. And the plant is going to make a deal with the little microorganism. This is basic one one soil biology. And it'll say, hey, little guy, I need some selenium. And the little guy says, I don't really want to give you selenium today. It's my selenium. And ooh, that sounds a lot like mycelium. That plays a role in this, but we're not going there right now. And the plant says, how about this sweet little goo? We call that an exudate, and it offers it to the little microorganism that says, ooh, cookies and cakes. It's basically what it is. It's fat, right, and protein, but it's mostly carbohydrates, it's mostly a sugar. Think of it as root sap. Wrong word, but think of it that way. So the plant goes squirt. The little microorganism goes gulp and the little microorganism goes poop. And then the poop is the selenium that the plant wanted in the first place, not the cadmium that's locked up in the biochar. Imagine a system this elegant, and you start to have a complete, total new awe of planet Earth and the place that we live, and how wonderful it is, and how screwed up it is. That I had to tell you the shit I had to tell you at the beginning of today's episode. This is what biochar can do for us. But let's say it didn't do that. Let's say it didn't do all the wonderful things that it does. Here's something you can verify yourself that it does because you can weigh it. Once it's See, one of the reasons we need to soak biochar either in water and then do something else with it or put it through the composting process or what have you, if you make biochar and you put it on water, it floats. It's what's called hydrophobic. We don't want it to be hydrophobic. We want it to be hydrophilic. Hydrophobic means I'm scared of water. Yeah, it can mean that, but it also means I repel water. So you can take a piece of biochar when it's first made, cooled off, hopefully, before you put it in your hand, put your hand at the bottom of the bucket, hold it there a couple of seconds, let it go, it'll float like a bar of, what is it, ivory, like a bar of ivory soap. It takes time for the water to actually break the surface tension. There's other ways we can make that happen a little bit faster. But composting is the easy hands-off way to do it. But we want it to take up water. But what happens once that surface tension is broke? Those of you in the live stream, help me out here. If I have a pound of biochar, how much water... Do you think one pound of biochar can hold and to give you on the time lag a little bit of time? I'm going to go to the next one and I'll come back to this. It also, again, provides a home for microbes. So in the live chat, how many how much water by weight do you think one pound of biochar can hold and don't use Google? Um, all if you look under an electron microscope. One little piece of biochar is like this world of thousands of little compartments. And your microbes live in there. They live in there. We got 1.6 and 4 on the answer. Biome calculator says half of a pound, and it continues. And none of you are right yet, I'll tell you that. Um, but it is a home for microbes. And because it locks up the microbes that lock up the nutrients, got people saying 10, also wrong, little high. I'll give you a hot cold on this one. 10 a little high. Um, It locks the nutrient up, and it reduces the nutrient loss. It also reduces soil erosion. It lets us grow without tilling every year, so it reduces soil erosion. Less soil erosion, less nutrient loss. But it also locks the nutrient up. Remember, I was talking about the vertical in the vertical. And this is why I think that these pits may have been more of a vertical build, slow in acreage, rather than a rapid acreage, slow in vertical. Because the reason 6, 6.66, we're getting close, eight everybody's close, nobody's right. Um, prevents the washing of nutrients just going away but through and down into the subsoil where the plants can't get to it anymore. Eight close, not quite there. Four from Pam, little low, eight's a little high. Uh, we'll keep going, though. Now I'll tell you. 7X. A pound of biochar, biochar will hold just Leah uh, leodefseum. Leaf Desi says seven pounds, and I think I'm going to give her credit because by the time lag, she said it right when I said it. No way she would have got seven pounds, seven pounds. So that's just under a gallon, 8.3 pounds to the gallon, I think. So 1.1 pounds, call it, holds a gallon of water. So for every 1.1 pounds of biochar that you incorporate into your garden or your farm, You can hold an extra gallon of water. People buy like uh, expanded shale that doesn't even come close to that just to reduce irrigation requirements. And you can make biochar from anything starting to sound pretty cool, isn't it? And I want to just say one more time before we move on. Some of these places in, in the Amazon basin, we know that that soil was made, 500 years ago or more. In fact, all of it was made that long ago or more because we pretty much wiped out the people who made it about 500 years ago. Some of it has been pretty much just left there for a thousand years. And when they find it, they can plan into it and it still grows. It holds that. Remember, what did I say? What are the three? Do you want your A plus build, hold, increase? Nature will increase if we build initially and hold infinitely. Nature will do the, even that one centimeter. In fact, this is something I just picked up today. Now, I think this can be abused, this fact, and it probably is. They're mining this soil, and selling it as potting soil. It's a horrible thing. But what they're finding is, they take some of it, and if they don't go like, all the way down and take it off, they skim it. Then soil builds on top of it, relatively quickly, that's extremely fertile. That's the biology spreading into it. So what happens is once this stuff exists, all that humus that comes down, it actually is taking the biology up into the humus. If you build and hold, nature will increase. That needs to be in a book somewhere. I'm probably not going to write a book on soil fertility. If you build and hold, nature will increase fertility. That's just the way nature works. But you have to build and you have to hold. Okay. so I also want to talk about like biochar. What is it? And what are the outputs? I, I'm going to tell you that there's some kilns. I'm going to be covering a lot more of this in the future. It's a fascinating subject for me. But there's actually four primary outputs when you make biochar, and all of them are useful. In a small backyard kiln, right, like a cone kiln or a pyramid kiln or a top, top, I don't remember, you light it from the top, it's a barrel thing uh, with a second barrel on the inside, all of those, you're pretty much going to get one major output, and that is biochar. You will also get heat. We'll get to that in a second. But there's going to be limits to what you can do with it. But when we scale up and we start we start to go into commercial-level production, which is where all this is headed in a huge way, there's two other outputs that we get. One is what we call wood vinegar. You probably have wood vinegar in your home, in your pantry. You call it liquid smoke. And the liquid smoke you have is uh, goes through a distillate process, a second distillate process to clean it up because you're going to consume it. It has to come from certain types of wood. Uh, Specifically, generally, they consider it wood that bears a fruit. And a fruit could also be a nut mass. So hickory would be an example. Pecan would be an example. Applewood would be an example. Right. So that's for human consumption. But wood vinegar comes from any woody mass that we make charcoal out of. Including things like, did you know you can make biochar out of walnut husks, pistachio husks, wood chips, pretty much anything that's corn cobs can make biochar. It doesn't have to be from a hardwood or a softwood. And bamboo is one of the best things in the world to make biochar from. And it's completely renewable. You cut it, it grows back. You cut it, it grows back. You cut it, it grows back. That's why people are so in love with it for building and floors and stuff like that, cutting boards and what have you, because it's such a renewable resource. But that wood vinegar is a biostimulant. Your mind is about the, like I think pop in this episode. If you fully take in some of what I'm telling you that we've ignored, that we've had access to that cultures in Asia have known this forever. If you take a very small amount of wood vinegar four milliliters to 25 milliliters and add it to about a liter of water and spray it on a plant. It will massively reduce the amount of pests that will attack it. They don't like it. It forms like a little bit of like a wood tar smoke. Think about smoke. Bugs don't like smoke. They don't like the smell of smoke. They run away from smoke. They stay away from smoke. You sit around the fire. If it's not a big billowing smoke that makes you choke, just a wafting smoke. The mosquitoes leave you alone. It works so well. The one big caveat is if you're if you're putting it on a plant that produces a flower that needs a pollinator, make sure you stop doing it and you don't do it too close to when you need pollination because it might actually even taste the pollinators away. But it's also a biostimulant. What does that mean? It makes plants grow. How about this? One of the reasons that California is so screwed with its forests is this misguided hippie bullshit that we can't let anything burn anymore. We can't let anything burn anymore. The most amazing biological thing that you can look at in California, in the Western United States, is a sequoia and a redwood. Do you know they will not even produce a seed unless they're exposed to smoke? Proper burns in woodlands, big mature trees, they don't burn. How many here in the live chat have ever been into the wilderness, been into a big forest, seen giant trees from the redwoods of California to maybe the giant ponderosa pines, in Colorado, at Rocky Mountain National, and the tree's bark is covered in soot. I often dig through some of my pictures. I have a picture. It looks like I'm holding up a giant tree. It's a huge ponderosa pine, and you can't even see the stump that the other tree came from. And what happened is the the big the one the one that looks like I'm holding up is totally black. It's a giant piece of you guessed it, charcoal. It really is. It was dead. When the fire came. It did burn, and it was weak at the bottom, so it fell. Check this out. This is cool as shit. It fell, and the branches at the top where it hadn't burned locked like a deer's antlers with this tree that was still alive, and it fell up against it, and the living tree is holding the corpse of a dead tree off the ground a couple feet, and the tree that's holding it up, I couldn't get my arms around, and the black tree, I could maybe barely get my arms around to give you an idea of the size. And that tree burned almost all the way up, sitting against the living tree, and the living tree didn't die. We're retarded in the way that we manage forests. We are idiots. We are morons. We have taken away a biological process with fire that stimulates growth. When we make biochar and we make that wood vinegar, it's probably as important and maybe even more valuable by weight. In fact, it is more valuable by weight in the market right now than the biochar itself. Larger systems, we can harvest that wood vinegar, and simple applications like that alone make it incredibly valuable. And one of the most valuable wood vinegars out there is bamboo wood vinegar. Are you going, maybe we should be teaching shit like this in our high schools and our middle schools to people? Maybe we should be teaching our society this stuff and asking yourself why we don't? And by the way, any fun about we are going to use this as excuses to cut down trees, drive around, drive around your neighborhood, look for brush piles. Wood chips. Look at all the material that's there. Look at just prunings. Look at waste products like, again, corn cobs, nut husks, bamboo trimmings. Look at what sawmills throw away. We never have to cut a single tree down for the purpose of making biochar. All we have to do is take any product that we can't use for anything else effectively and make biochar and we have enough. Maybe. I'll get to that, too, in the opportunity that's in this. There's one more offput one of the reasons that we get this incredibly efficient burn is that it makes wood gas we call that syngas s not sin sin like the devil made me do it syn syngas synthetic gas well we don't it doesn't all burn it doesn't all let me put it a different way in the right system it doesn't all have to burn it can be harvested and burned to do work or it could be harvested and bottled and pressurized to do work later nana city farm i got your question even though you didn't use uh i don't think it's a question but it's a good point i'll make sure we do it um jesse I'll, I'll throw yours in for the future as well okay so we get this gas now if we were doing something like making biochar on a farm or in a greenhouse operation we could save this gas and use it to generate our own electricity or to run a vehicle, or to run equipment, or to run electrical equipment on a generator. Or, if we wanted to monetize the energy that we couldn't sell, we could mine Bitcoin with the biogas that comes as a byproduct from the system. In fact, we could use only the gas that we don't have another use for, so that we're always making a revenue model. We make the model financially sustainable. Don't worry. I won't turn this into a Bitcoin breakout. That's all I'm going to say. We could do that. Either you understand how valuable that is or you don't. Um, definitely something to look at though. Last, we get heat. Now we do get that in a backyard situation. We could cook while we make biogas. That's about it. But in a more, even a pretty simple redneck engineered system, What if we had a greenhouse, what if in that greenhouse we had some ponds because we were doing aquaponics or waking beds? And what if when we made biochar on cold days, we simply made some level of a water jacket, something like that, some way to heat water in pipes and circulated water out of the pipes around whatever our kiln was and put warm water back into the ponds, creating a thermal battery that kept the greenhouse warm overnight. We might even run the kiln inside the greenhouse at night to keep it warm, just as an example. But if you're making heat, you have the power to do work. You could use it to dry things. You could have a system that's burning something that's not dry enough to make good biochar, but the residual heat is used to dry the next batch. Think of all the ways that heat can be used and how sometimes heat's a problem. I don't want heat in my greenhouse in August. But what can I do with it? So there's four major outputs, biochar, wood vinegar, syngas, and heat. Oh, by the way, all these assholes, right? I'll get to that. That'll be my last piece. I'm going to save this for a second. But the Bill Gates is of the world. They want a lot of biochar now. I'll tell you why in a minute. Before I do, I want to point something out. You might be like, Jack's fully fully gone, and he's consumed the biochar-infused Kool-Aid. By the way, they make drinks with charcoal in them, I'm just saying, like, Literally on store shelves now. Um, no, I want to be clear. Something biochar is not the solution. It's a solution. Other solutions: rotational grazing, fodder systems, composting in general, garden and market garden scale systems, small scale solutions, dealing with existing race streams. Like right? there's so many ways that we can make things better with function stacking. There isn't a solution. This is this freaking humans have this giant three pound brain, but we act like we have a teeny tiny little mouse brain. We have all these problems. Here's a solution. Do you, do you not, when you just think about it that way, think about how stupid, how stupid that sounds. Here's 20 problems. Here's a solution for all of them. And what happens? Remember, I said we don't have time to fight anymore? People find their thing. Somebody find something like Korean natural farming and IMOs, indigenous microorganisms. And that's the only thing we need. Not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody's going to use biochar either. It's okay. Will it work anywhere? Done right. I bet it will. Does it make sense everywhere? Probably not. Does it make economic sense everywhere? Nothing makes economic sense everywhere. Is everybody willing to do the things that need to be done to make it useful? No. It's a piece. All of this is a piece. But it has a huge advantage as a piece of the puzzle. That's where I was going. and I cut myself off there a second ago. The mainstream is getting on board. The mainstream is getting on board. So these geniuses decided we'll fix the planet and we'll do it by reducing the air that people exhale CO2. It's the only problem. Even the true believers in AGW climate change by CO2 are starting to realize that even if they were right about that, some of the other shit I gave you today is actually bigger, more catastrophic environmental threats to humanity and survival of the planet. But they did it. They sold it for 40 freaking years. They're getting their carbon offset bullshit trading market in place. And it turns out a lot of these companies that are pushing it are like, yeah, we got what we own. Oh, well, wait a minute. There's not enough clean energy for us to buy. To offset all the energy that we use, I'm talking companies like Apple and Microsoft, et cetera. And there's not a good viable way to truly offset your carbon. Investing in windmills turns out just doesn't do it. There's not enough windmills and it doesn't offset enough because they don't have the payback that you've been told they have. And it's not as bad as the other side told you either It's somewhere in the middle, but it doesn't work out. It doesn't pencil out. So Microsoft is an example has a bid out. I don't remember for how much, but it's like just, they want more biochar and of a certain grade that is available. One source. They don't even know what they want to do with it. Maybe Bill Gates wants to put it into all his farmland. I don't know. But I mean, they're even, they're putting it in a road base. Now they're putting in the walls Because one way or another, the carbon's locked up. Now, you might think, what a waste. Well, maybe. But what if we created a market here where the person is making biochar? They use all that they can use in their own operation. They sell all that they can to people that don't want to make their own, but can use it for agricultural purposes. But there's a market that just like you can sell copper, junk copper for X dollars a pound. Or something much cheaper like zinc for X dollars a pound. There was a market for all the surplus that you could just dump it and have it paid for. And the better you made it, the higher quality, the higher the grade, the more you could get for it. I can't go into that today. We're already an hour and 20 minutes deep. But that's coming. So now... Your community level farm on two acres right in the heart of the city is harvesting the waste streams that are all around it, growing food locally, selling to the people that live there and to the high end restaurants, making biochar, building soil, selling composted soil. In addition to that, and whatever they can't sell, they can just dump as a commodity. And somebody's got to do something with that waste. And if you're worried about carbon in the atmosphere, this really is the best carbon sequestration method that exists. And you're never cutting, don't ever let anybody tell you it's an excuse to cut a tree down. There is way more waste than we could ever need to do this with. It will never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever infinity, never, ever infinity be justifiable to cut down a tree, at least one that doesn't grow back. Because there's a lot of other ways we can do this. Like I mentioned fodder systems. If you're growing sheep or rabbits or something, and you're planting your Nick Ferguson three Thremium, right? I'm going to come up with a name for that, the thremium. I like that. Uh, fodder trees, which is your uh, uh, hybrid willow, your hybrid poplar, and your white mulberry, and you're cutting it on a regular basis to provide fodder, what you're going to find is that you're cutting a lot of leaves and really small stems that your animals eat, and you're cutting stuff that's like as big as your thumb, maybe as big as your wrist, that the animals don't want. You can make biochar out of it, and it's a carbon, not carbon neutral This is carbon negative when you take a piece of organic matter and you turn it into biochar, 50 percent of the carbon in that thing is locked up for longer than 10 generations of humanity. At least depending on what you do with it, maybe for all intents and purposes forever. So it's carbon negative. It's the only easily accessible form of carbon negative offset. Even farming is carbon positive. Because when you put all this organic matter in the soil, much of it comes out. Oh, you know what else you can do with it? You make your compost pile, and then you cap your compost pile with it, and all of the gases that normally leave your compost get absorbed into the charcoal. All that nutrients harvested, it doesn't go in the atmosphere, it gets sequestered with the carbon in the ground. Now, I, you see why I'm a little bit excited about this? Uh, they also know the, the sheep, their sheep, which is you, by the way, and I know you might not, when I say you, I mean the general population are going to starve if they don't fix the problem. I did a show before I left. They want you sick, dying and compliant, right? But they don't want you dead. They want you to be a good tax cow, a good milk cow, right? Moo, milk, milk the taxes. They need you sick, but not dead. If they don't do something about this, people are going to die in large scale. Not tomorrow tomorrow. Not next week, not next year, but you can already see it starting to eat away at humanity. I covered that well, so I won't do it again, but they know they need to fix something and this actually fixes it, but it also plays to modern virtue signaling. I can't tell you how important it is. We have, we have so many solutions to offer the people that claim this environmental catastrophe is all about CO2. So many solutions and you know how they are. I don't want a solution. I want a carbon tax. I don't want a solution. I want a carbon trading scheme. I don't want a solution. I want to be told I'm right. This technology, this ancient technology is the best technology I've ever found to do something that I've been trying to do for 15 years with this podcast. It makes allies out of adversaries. I've always said I will do exactly what the other side wants me to do if I would do it anyway. And here's the difference between us. Remember who I said us is everybody from the militant vegan growing bananas and strawberries in Mexico to the redneck hippie duck farmer, half 90% carnivore in the central region of Texas. Everybody is us, Right. We are actually doing things. We're actually trying to get done. That's the commonality. We actually want to prove this works. We want to do things. All of us can use this one way or another, one piece of it or another, but we can sell it to them. They'll buy it. And I don't just mean physically. I mean the idea. The only people that are really opposed to biochar are people on our side, if you want to look at it that way again. It's the purest permaculture. It's the purple breeders. The people that think that we can't acknowledge that humans actually had a hand in the Amazon rainforest, for instance, that it's not a natural system onto itself. It's a natural system steered by human hands and fire. It's a very small number of people. I'm not worried about small numbers of people that don't have power. I'm not. Not when it's in opposition to what you need to get done that's the right thing. You just go do it. What I'm worried about is the masses that are under a hallucination and the people with power, the oligarchy when they're opposed to what you're trying to do, or they simply ignore it and you can't gain any allies amongst your enemies. It's a total uphill battle. This is a layup. And it works because it's additive rather than replacement. And this is what I mean. Do it right. Add it to anything. And it gets better and less bad at the same time. So you take full on. Full on. 100% glorious permaculture organic farm not using biochar. You find a way to add it with as little labor and cost as possible, that farm gets better. I believe, and I'm not advocating that this is an excuse or lets it be done, but if you took Midwest soil being plowed every year, chem ag style, and did proper integration of biochar and continue to do the shittiest thing that you can do, which I hope they'll stop, it still gets better. And I'll take better over nothing. I'll take absolutely better over nothing any day. And we do that by making allies out of adversaries. Let me give you an example of how you can take an existing system and instead of saying you have to do something radically different, Jack, with your duck farm, how I'm going to implement this now that I fully understand it. I have a little kiln, I've had it for a couple of years. We used it at one of the the workshops, we made some biochar, half of it's still in a bucket, I made one batch of it, I realize how stupid I am now. I have all this material I can make biochar out of, every week I can make another batch of biochar, okay? Every week I can make another batch of biochar, every single week, and it's not a lot of work. Basically, you take this metal thing and you throw wood into it. I'll do a video on how it works, there's plenty of videos, I have tons of resources in the notes, you can look up and see how it gets done. But you light it, it starts burning, you keep adding material, until you get it full, you let it burn to a certain point, you take a garden hose and you spray it down, and then you break it up, which after you spray it down, it fractures, and gets easy to break up, and you want it in relatively small pieces. If you really want to make it into small pieces, people do things like beat it in a bag with a hammer, people make crushers, but I found a guy, I have, his name is Michael Whitman, his company's called Blue Sky Biochar, best speaker I've heard on it so far, not that, he's very smart, don't get this wrong, I've seen some people I think are more uh, academic than him, though he's highly academic, but the best backyard level. Hey, this is how and what and why. And he was on a podcast. He said you just he has a steel leaf vacuum, steel like steel chainsaws. And has a bag on it. The bag is high filtration. Because The problem with this stuff is it's dusty. You can eat it. You can rub it on your skin, but you do not want it in your lungs. That's bad, bad shit. But the bag on it, since it's designed to be used like for vacuum up leaves and yard waste and all, it has to be used. In residential situations, commercial situations, um, it's very high filtration. So he just sucks it up with that and you get perfectly busted up biochar in the back. I have some other ways to do that, but you got to break it up. You want it to be relatively small and then you do whatever you're going to do to implement. And I make compost. I make compost because I take the litter out of my greenhouse, my greenhouse, my duck house once a year. And I make three giant piles of compost. And it takes about three months to make. I never turn it. I use Johnson Sioux like method. And then I apply it throughout the year. At the end of the year, I take whatever's left. I put it on my gardens and I do it again. All I have to do is make biochar. And every time I add to my deep litter mix in my greenhouse, put down about a bucket of biochar in my greenhouse. Or my, my I keep saying that my duck house, my chicken coop. That's all I have to do. I don't actually have to do anything else. My animals are going to eat some of it. Now, I don't have to add it to their feed. They're going to find it. These animals seek out and eat charcoal, if you know that. So now my ducks and my chickens and my geese are going to eat some charcoal. They run all over my property, and they poop out perfect little pockets of biochar. So over time, long time preference, my animals will cycle some of the biochar throughout the entire property. But what happens when I make compost? It's already there. Oh, darn, I have to sit outside at my fire pit. And drink a beer while the sun goes down for a couple hours or do a school lesson with my grandson where we build a fire together. Gee, that's hard. Guys, that's all I had to do. Everything that's already in place, the entire system is already set up. All you find is the insertion point. And I believe if you look hard enough with a little creativity, you could probably if you have a good system, you can find an insertion point. Now, here's another thing that we can do. Here's another thing that we can do. I have a pit. I throw all our food scraps in it, all of our kitchen waste, some excess carbon. I throw all my water plants. I feed my ducks and chickens into it. And when I make my compost, I take some of the litter. I put it in the, in the big ring that I build to make my compost. I wet that down. And then I take a shovel full or two, and I add it to that. And then I take another layer from the, the duck house, and I keep doing that and alternating them. Yeah. And some stray carbon and stuff like that, too. I do this with. OK, so I can also throw biochar into that pit again. Now I'm going to get more consumption by the animals, more depositing. And I'll get your question trial and error in a Q&A session coming up in just a second. Good question, but it's super easy. It's not even a problem once we do the types of things I'm saying. But before I turn corner to Q&A, what else can we do? Biochar aside or with biochar? What I love about a topic like this is it cracks your brain open. I spent four hours driving down to Bastrop, Texas, last Wednesday, and I, I researched before I left. I found everything that I could listen to that seemed like it was great to listen to on the way down. And when I got down there, Ken Berry looked at me. He was back in the green room for the speakers, and he said, "You look like you're onto something. Not on something, onto something." And I'm like, "I need an effing whiteboard." The ideas that I have of how to tie this together, to monetize this, to create going concerns with it are insane. I gave you 1% of what's in my head today. I'm not even exaggerating. I gave you 1% of what I could give you on this topic today in an hour and a half. And I've just gotten started. I love this. And even if what you come up with is, you know, outside of this, If it if it cracks the brain open, the mind open, if it changes the thinking, you know, just when I figured out, holy shit, maybe they didn't grow horizontal, they grew vertical. It's paradigm shifting. It's absolutely paradigm shifting, shifting. All right. So let's take a few questions. I'm going to go fast with them. I'm going to go. I'm going to take trial and errors first. This is a great question. How do we keep it out of our animals lungs? If we're mixing it into litter and things like that, it's not a problem. It's when you're bashing it and mixing it and whatever. It's also really takes in moisture really fast. So if you're spreading it into your litter or mixing it into food or something like that, it's going to absorb moisture. You might want to take your bucket that's for that purpose and let it sit for a few weeks to even a few months, longer time horizon. Because even just sitting out in the atmosphere, it begins to start absorbing moisture in time. I can tell you the stuff that I have left over from a couple of years ago has plenty of moisture that it's taken out of the atmosphere. I can tell just when I touch it and when I feel it, when you make biochar initially, if you did it right again, it sounds almost like glass crystals or ceramics or something like that. When you, when you m- mix it up and this it did when we made it and now it sounds like thudding because it's got moisture in it and it's not completely dried out anymore. So it won't be a problem if you do it that way. Let's see what else we got. Um, K-Bong says, and who owns Roundup now? A German chem company, Bayer. That's correct. Uh, We can stop hammering Mons- Monsanto is the worst company on planet Earth because they were wholly purchased and absorbed by Bayer. So Bayer, same people that make your aspirin, are now probably the most evil company on planet Earth. Space Girl says, could creosote be used like biochar? No. Creosote is tar. Basically, it's a tar byproduct from the burning process, so no, it does not work like biochar, I don't know if diluted, it might not serve the same similar role as wood vinegar, but I doubt it, it's pretty icky shit, Uh, what about in the bottom of a rabbit cage, don't really know what Bill is asking about, but the wood chips and wood shavings that would come out of something, well, no, because the rabbit cage, you go fall through, you don't collect, because The urine is corrosive, and so maybe whatever the rabbit poo is falling into, uh, that would probably be better composted. Wood shavings, small small particles that mat together do not make good uh, biochar. A lot of places have experimented with making biochar out of chunky wood chips, and when they do kind of um, the double chamber method, they don't work. They char on the outside, and the center doesn't char. But big, thick, chunky wood chips, like the shit you get from, like, tree trimmers and stuff like that, in a kiln, like a pyramid kiln or a cone kiln, they can work really well, especially if you mix them with random sticks and other products so it's not all one big lump, right? So we can do that, but most of that stuff works better uh, as compost and mulch and bedding. Ask the animal says, can you stack the kiln function and fire pottery at the same time you make biochar? Probably, probably. I think that there's no limit to what can be done with the heat because the amount of heat produced, even in a relatively small kiln, is extreme. I can see someday the potential that there might be a bakery. If we can get over the fact, here's the the whole the problem with this. A lot of things in agriculture can't be in the same place. Like if you want to have animals and food grown in the same place and be a commercial operation open to the public, you're not allowed to do that. You have to say separate the animal from the vegetable, unless it's aquaponics. So the, it's kind of a loophole, right? Um, but imagine a greenhouse that grows food that it sells like a market. Inside the greenhouse is a coffee shop. So when you have your coffee, instead of going to Starbucks in this kind of industrial environment, you could sit down and drink coffee and listen to waterfalls, maybe some birds flying around surrounded by basically a farm all natural. But what if we pumped the heat into a chamber and it was a bakery? I don't eat bread, but many people do. And maybe you had a bakery so you could have a fresh piece of sourdough and a coffee inside a greenhouse growing food and the bed. I, I don't think there's any limit to what we can do with that heat. If we think about it, uh, Nana city farm says sunflower stocks make good biochar. I didn't know that. That's great. See, that's an example of, If you are growing black oil sunflower, the stalks themselves are somewhat allopathic. They don't make the best mulch and they don't make the best compost. You put it through the biochar process and those allopathic, that means they inhibit the growth of other plants. Some plants are allopathic. What they're doing is they, they secrete this and it suppresses the growth of competitors. And it's not persistent. It doesn't last forever, but it's not something you really want to be making compost out of. Like, you know, Black um, black walnut is an example. Something you don't really want to make compost out of. So you put it through the biochar process, and it would be fine. And honestly, I have huge wild sunflower that grow around here all the time, and the stalks are bigger than my wrist at the end of the season. I used to just throw them in the fire pit. Apparently, I could be making biochar out of them. Jesse says, how about buckeyes? They do say... There are certain toxic things that you don't want in your biochar stock. I don't know if buck because I know Buckeyes can be toxic. I don't know if that would be uh, one of them or not. We'll ask that when I have experts on because boys and girls, we're going to have some experts on on this subject. Josh says leaves and lawn cuttings. No. No. Now you're back to kind of being matted up. Those are there's other functions that we can do with those. Um Green Country says pump your water into insulated in-ground tanks. Hold it for use on the hot side of a Teg when you need electricity. Yeah. Again, however we can harvest and use the heat. You could pump the heat into the ground in a passive greenhouse, uh, just like you do with a solar thermal geothermal battery where the ground actually slowly radiates heat over time to keep it warm. So you weren't constantly in a cycle of needing to produce. There's a lot of things we could do. Um, Mark says, I saved the black charcoal from a wood stove by screening, same as biochar. Thanks. Maybe, maybe not. It depends. How is that charcoal produced? The way you can really tell, you should be able to take good biochar, and unless it's really a huge piece of some really hard source material, you should be able to just crumble it in your hands. And again, it should sound like glass crystals to a degree. So I believe that when you pull charcoal out, some of it would be biochar. Some of it would still have quite a bit of the organic matter left in it, but none of it would be harmful. And it still needs to be treated the same way biochar is with, you know, making it ready for soil inhabitants. Faith says, does biochar have a place in the function of unbinding phosphorus so that rock phosphate isn't needed? I bet it does. I think we need people like Dr. Elaine Ingham to investigate that. Definitely. I think that biochar might have a role when you mentioned phosphorus in these awful, horrible phosphate pits in Florida that are full of radioactivity and binding up and fixing a lot of that. Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I felt like it was pretty fire. And I'm telling you. We just scratched the surface. Don't worry. I will not change this into, hi, this is Jack Speerka with the Biochar Podcast. But we are going to do a series over a couple months, maybe every other week, uh, bringing in some experts on this technology. Michael Whitman, I'm definitely going to get. There's another gentleman named Bob Wells. For those that remember, we worked with Bob Wells uh, Nursery. Totally different person. He seems pretty amazing. There are some people that are really freaking switched on with this. And the beauty, yes, yes, T.C., Uh, TCG Joe says phosphorus phosphate pits are radioactive. Yes, they are. Remember when I said when they put the phosphorus on the fields? I don't know if you got to the beginning that they're putting uranium. They're putting uranium on the farm fields. 12,000 tons globally a year go on our farm fields of uranium. Well, most of the uranium doesn't go on our farm fields in the phosphate fertilizer. It stays behind in the residue after the phosphates are extracted. And those horrible looking disgusting pits. Horrible-looking, disgusting pits in Florida. Just look up phosphate pits Florida. They're highly radioactive. Now, they're not radioactive like enriched uranium, but you don't want to spend a lot of time around them. Yeah, they're radioactive. There may be a way to clean up a lot of this mess. And one more before we go. Does it have to be stored airtight? No, it does not. Uh, But one more before we go. We have... A huge amount of phosphates available for agricultural use that we don't use for agricultural use are poop. And there's a lot of ways to change that. But let's be honest. Most people like the convenience of you take a poop, you flush a toilet, it goes away. Yeah. It's very difficult to work with sewage solids. And there's all kinds of icky shit in there besides the poop itself. All kinds of chemicals and all. They are developing technologies that will let us take these biosolids and turn them into biochar and lock up that ickiness and possibly figure out how to harvest that phosphate without radically changing the way people live as far as where your poop goes. Because there's simple solutions to that, too. But, you know, I'm too civilized to deal with my own waste. My God, what am I, a sheeple? Those people work for me, and they want flush toilets too, right? So there are all types of things that we can do with this. Real quick, if you did like this show and you like the work that we do, there's quite a few ways you can support us. Uh, one of those would be become a member of the MSB, and I'm just saying if you went to the website right now, the thesurvivalpodcast.com, and you scrolled down, you'd see a post that says my resources that I provided from the Greater Reset presentation I did, And you might find a discount code there, and you might be able to become a member for even less money. And it really pays for itself, then. I'm just saying. So think about becoming a member. The other way is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T S P A Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day the eTech City Laser Grip Digital Temperature Gun. It's basically a thermometer. You point at a thing, you pull a button, a little red light hits it. It tells you what the temperature is in either Fahrenheit or Celsius. So many things to do with it. You can read the article, but I have a project for all you permaculturists, all you homesteaders, and all you homeschoolers. Make biochar, but what else could you do? You could see how hot your biochar is burning. Yes, it'll do that. Hold on. You don't have to make any biochar for this project. Go around your house, outside your house, various times a day, and look for microclimates. You know what microclimate is? When I left Wednesday morning, it was almost below freezing here, but not quite. But there were microclimates where it was. When I went out, I noticed that my Challenger, right, my hood was wet and my roof was frozen. That little difference between the hood and the roof on elevation alone on the car and the metal surface created freezing, not freezing. Well, you take this thing around and you do things like measure the temperature of your south facing wall of your house, Versus a north-facing wall. Do it in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And record that information. And then look for microclimates all over your property. Where is it cooler? Where is it warmer? At what times of year? And then take those kiddos out, you homeschoolers or not homeschoolers as well, and make a project out of it. They love this thing. And it's harmless. Don't shoot it in anybody's eye. But other than that, totally harmless. There's so much you can do with this. And how accurate is it? So when I first bought one of these, I wondered that myself and it seemed pretty accurate. And about a couple of weeks after that, I, we had an air conditioner problem and the house wasn't cool enough. And I ain't doing that. I called the air conditioner man. The air conditioner man came, said, here's your problem. Here's a bill. Pay the bill, pay the bill, fix the problem. And when he had the air conditioner running, he took a gun, a very expensive gun. that looked similar to this made by a company called Fluke, who I used to work for many, many years ago. And this is like a two hundred dollar test equipment piece. Pointed it at the uh, air conditioner showed me. said, see, nice and cold, it's blowing snowballs. But hold on a second. I went and got that little thing right there, which is on sale for 15 bucks today. One degree difference. We went around the house like two little kids playing with toys. Who's this better? We had a one degree variance. Sometimes I was one higher, he was one lower, vice versa. Everywhere we checked, $200, $15, one degree variance. Say that's pretty accurate for 15 bucks on sale today, normally over 20 bucks. So get one of these, have fun, and start learning about your property and read all the other things. Here's the thing I do with mine. I have big water catchment tanks. They're black. You can't really see the water. That way it doesn't get skanky. I want to know how much water's in there. I take my laser temperature gun. I point it at the tank, and you'll just follow it up, and you'll find a place where the temperature rapidly changes. That's the water level. Cool, huh? All kinds of cool stuff. Check it out. You can find everything I recommend at tspaz.com. Again, I hope you're as excited about this subject as I am. More is coming tomorrow. I have a great show for you. We're going to blow your mind again tomorrow. I know it's Tuesday. It's a Bitcoin breakout day. Not exactly. Tomorrow we're going to talk about a plant, one I've talked to you about before, a Zola. We're going to talk about this with a gentleman named Moses, and I can't pronounce his last name. It looks like Sahan Token, and he is a descendant of First Peoples. He is working with this plant, Azola, to develop food and fuel stocks. You can feed animals with it, but you can make energy with it. You can make fertilizer with it. It might fit right in with today's discussion at a much higher level. And those of you that know me, I've been working with Azola for a long time. And unlike a lot of other amazing aquatic plants, it's not considered... Uh, an invasive species in anywhere I know of in the United States. So you can grow it anywhere. It fixes nitrogen. It feeds animals. It can feed. It can be used as feedstock for energy. And yes, we will talk about the fact you could use that energy to make Bitcoin with it. Uh, but it also does a lot of other amazing things. So if you dug today's talk and you hide on Tuesdays because I don't want no Bitcoin. Don't hide tomorrow. This is going to be way too cool for school. I want you there. Anyway, guys, we will uh, catch you again tomorrow with another episode of the Survival Podcast. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way